Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Larry Stutzry, retired general, US Air Force. I'm director of research here at the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. And welcome to the release of our new policy paper. It's titled Command and Control Imperatives for the 21st Century. The next areas of growth for ABMS and JADC2. As you are all aware, the topic of command and control is hot and it is a complicated warfighting function that is long overdue for a complete conceptual and hardware overhaul. To that aim, the Air Force is at times struggle to communicate its intent for the Air Battle Management System or ABMS and Joint All Domain Command and Control or JADC2. As one of our panelists, mentioned to me yesterday, command and control as a system of both hardware and airmen is anchored in a mindset of permissiveness and certain Air Force dominance in the air. If so, that must certainly change as the Department of Defense faces the return of great power conflict. This Mitchell study addresses this and many other aspects of command and control for this century, not the last. To explain the analysis and conclusions of this project, we have the author, Doug Berkey, who's the executive director of Mitchell Institute. Welcome, Doug. Hey, thanks, Dutch. Appreciate being here. You bet. And to also assist our two distinguished air battle managers from the US Air Force, who will soon finish up their year at Mitchell Institute as Air Force Fellows. First, we have a big welcome to Colonel Nelson Bigfoot Rouleau. Colonel Rouleau is a senior air battle manager. His operational command and control experience includes the AWACS and multiple combat tours with the Control and Reporting Center and Joint Stars. He was a uh, part of the Air Force's largest and longest combat convoy during Operation Iraqi Freedom, and he commanded the 12th Airborne Command and Control Squadron. He's also a proud graduate of the Air Force School of Advanced Air and Space Studies. And we also have Major Alex Big Bobby Wallace. Major Wallace is a senior air battle manager also. His operational flying experience includes AWACS and Joint Stars, combat hours during missions supporting operations, enduring freedom, combined defense of the Arabian Gulf, and Odyssey Resolve to the name of few. He's a graduate of the Air Force Weapons School. Well, welcome gentlemen. And I want to note for our audience that the Air Force has allowed Colonel Rouleau and Major Wallace to participate with us today as highly experienced subject matter experts. That said, their views are their own and do not necessarily speak for Air Force leadership or Air Force policy. So with those introductions, let's explore this project. Over to you, Doug. No, Stats, I appreciate it. And Camille, if we could bring up the slide deck. Oh, she's doing that. I'd like to thank Colonel Rouleau and Major Wallace for their insights and perspective on this topic over the past year. You know, you're going to hear from them in a few minutes, and we've benefited tremendously from their professional expertise and, and just operational reality and pragmatism they, they bring to the to the dialogue here. And given everything, it's it's on the plate right now uh, with modernization and, and requirements and all. It's meant an awful lot to us. Next slide, please. So Mitchell's long been interested in command and control. We've covered it in a number of reports and events, and the reason is simple. You know, C2 is the backbone for any successful military operation, whether wartime or peacetime. You know, we can't effectively harness the potential of hardware, whether it's planes, satellites, ships, or tanks, and the trained professionals operating them without proper coordinated guidance. So to anyone who says we can't afford robust C2 investment, 
I'd turn the question on them. You know, how can we afford to spend billions on various programs, but not invest in the foundation that's going to underpin their effective employment? I mean, that'd be like buying a new car, but not budgeting for gas. Kind of defeats the point. So that said, it's important to note that the Department of the Air Force leadership should be complimented on their C2 focus in recent years. Concepts like ABMS and JADC2 are rapidly accelerating the art of the possible C2. But this focus needs to continue because the future operating environment is going to demand significant changes. So next slide, please. So let's talk about terms real fast here. This isn't a doctrinal definition, but I think it cuts to the chase. When I think about C2, it's all about gaining situational awareness and using that information to place mission assets at the right time and place to achieve command objectives. We want to do this while avoiding dangerous threats. You know, there are three main components of that. The actual command authority and intent, so who's in charge, the delegation of authority over mission assets and people to the chain, and then the means of execution. So that's everything from trained C2 professionals to communications equipment and procedures. And all of these components are important to balance because, you know, too often we focus on one element of the enterprise to the exclusion of others. This is an ecosystem. It, it takes a holistic approach. And so to be direct, you know, the Department of Air Force talking points recently have focused a lot on networks. And that's crucial. I get it. You can't have this without the ability to communicate, but it's not an end state unto itself. And that's why the quote below is particularly important. You know, think about it for a minute. This is something that you have to think about all the, the given aspects. It's, it's not that one piece of technology is going to yield your end state. Next slide, please. So the imperative for this is clear in my mind. You know, projecting effective combat power in the modern age is all about blended multi-domain solutions. We're going to see space assets, aircraft, ships, land forces, each contribute various strengths in an a la carte dynamic fashion. You know, think about a B-21 using space ISR data to strike a target with additional strikes in the area, suppressing enemy air defenses coming off a ship and all that brought together by a space and terrestrial communication network. You know, this is something that we're just gonna see more and more of, and it's very complex. It's gonna take a whole new level of command and control way past what we have today. And nor is artificial intelligence or, or machine learning gonna be the magic panacea to make it happen. It's gonna be crucially important, but people are still gonna be important to provide insight, judgment, and guidance. Another driver that's forcing this here is the force is too small given demand. You know, so whether we're talking about the smallest bomber inventory in Air Force history, despite surging demand or unyielding pressure for more capabilities on orbit, we need to get two and two to equal five these days. And the only way to do that is a very careful alignment of capability with demand. And finally, you know, the current C2 enterprise is fragile. It depends on comlinks that can easily be targeted, old hardware, and operating locations that are vulnerable to attack. And so this is just a zone where we really need to think about how do we do it smartly? Because the volume of data is gonna be huge, the challenge is gonna be significant, and we gotta be relevant and actionable how we approach this. Next slide, please. So to understand where we are today, I think we need to review some history. And I kind of batch things into seven major categories from an aerospace lens. So first off, you've got World War I. And this is really an example where there's minimal operational and tactical C2. You know, Fighter pilots would take off and they would kind of know the enemy is over that way. And so they'd take off and, and head that way in patrol. But you needed huge mass because they didn't really know where the adversary was. They had to just kind of have enough volume to run into them. And then once they did, they'd engage and hopefully, you know, secure mission results. And so we're in a zone today where you can't do that. 
we cannot, we don't have the volume to, to make up for the lack of knowledge. So that really speaks to the next era. And that was really at the opening of World War II. Many nations, especially the UK, invested a lot in radar, communication networks, and, and other means to help create a command and control network. And we've all seen the pictures of this during the, uh, the Battle of Britain, where you've got the radar stations, you've got the, the plotting boards, uh, and then obviously the radio links to the uh, fighter aircraft. And you know they launched and they were vectored into to pull an intercept. And to think about what was in play then and the value of that command and control, think about this. In the summer of 1940, the RAF had 446 operational fighters to face 3,500 German combat aircraft that were across the channel that summer. You know, in 10 days, between August 8th and August 18th of 1940, the RAF lost 154 pilots and only got 63 green replacements. You know, the defensive force was under tremendous strain. So C2 is what allowed them to prevail in a right time, right place, right asset. And so we really need to take that lesson to heart right now. You know, a few months later in World War II, we saw the next major step, and that was the advent of the weapon system in many ways of an aircraft. And that's when night fighters had radar on board them. And so the ground-based system would get them pretty close for the intercept, but it was the onboard radar system that would, would really help them get in a position for the kill. And that obviously has, has developed uh, to pretty sophisticated levels today. In the early Cold War, we saw the World War II system of ground and air-based defense systems you know, expand markedly. And it was really because of jet age speed and, and mass geography that saw the need for early detection, rapid data processing, extremely precise guidance, and continent-wide coordination. And it was all about providing time and space for detection, decision-making, and force employment. And this is where computers, data links, and automation entered the fold. And we're trying to compress the OODA loop to maximize our ability to respond. Now, in the middle of the Cold War, we saw the need to, to take this C2 enterprise in more of a dynamic mobile fashion. And so that's where airborne assets like the EC-121, think of that like an, an early AWACS, came to the fold. You could deploy it anywhere and bring a lot of these capabilities um, to, to remote locations. So we use these a ton in Vietnam. And that was very, very important because it was a difficult operating environment. The operational uh, engagement parameters were, were taxing. Uh, the tactics involved were, were challenging. And these folks really added a lot of clarity to help the tactical assets in play be smarter about how they engaged. There's another variable in play here too. The aircraft like the F-4 had advanced markedly with the systems on board, but the pilot's head was still the fusion engine. So they had a number of disparate inputs coming at them. Infusing this all real time under the pressure of combat could oftentimes be overwhelming. The AWACS or the EC-121 time helped provide kind of that quarterback function to make sense of it and, and help them out. And that is really what led to the requirement for the modern AWACS, which yesterday celebrated its 41st birthday. So that kind of gives you an age of the, the you know, current system in play. But it was all about making people more uh, strategic in how they approach a battle space, not just purely reactionary. And so now we're living in an era where if you look at the last 20 years, we've got mass sensors, tremendous processing power, and huge amount of connectivity. And it's a really powerful system. But on the other hand, it's led to a lot of challenges. You know, things like the MQ-9, fifth generation aircraft, I mean, nobody can argue. These are game changers, they're amazing. But it's a system out of balance. The volume of data is overwhelming. 
I mean, comm lines are too fragile, legacy parts of the enterprise like AWACS, like I said, are increasingly lagging with real world demand just because of the age of the, of the system and the, and the architecture there. And the enemy knows this, they're poised to challenge every link of it. And so that's really what brings us to the problem statement for ABMS and JADC2, where AI machine learning are gonna help process mass volumes of data, links are gonna be more robust, cross-domain fusion is gonna be the center of everything, but we also need to think where the C2 expertise resides in this model. It's really an open question that needs to be considered carefully. Next slide. You guys can, can look at these, they're quotes from the paper that I pulled, but the main message here, this is a cyclical problem statement. We've been here before, this is solvable, but we gotta get real about it. And it, it's kind of amusing. If you look at General Dixon's statement here, when he's talking about AWACS, it's almost a, a statement that can be applied to ABMS and JADC2. So it's back to the future. Next slide. So again, if you, if you baseline where we're at, the current system is fragile, increasingly out of step with real world demand. Components are all over the map. Everything from you know, the, the big wing ISR that's been around decades to fifth generation aircraft and RPA sensor shooters, you know, they're connected by links that are less than robust given the threats. We've assumed connectivity based on a permissive nature for the past 20 years. We've grown accustomed to limited operating regions not mass uh, regions like the Pacific, which have way different pressures. Uh, the services right now are pursuing individual solutions that lack coordination. And we know adversaries are gonna set to, to target our, our C2 enterprise. I mean, look at the quote below from DOD's China report. This is a big deal. Next slide, please. So going forward, I think there are three major imperatives that we need to keep in mind. First, this demands balancing what technology can bring to the table and where human intellect is still important. We clearly need things like AI and machine learning to process you know, data flows and all that, but technology does not equal C2. It takes human critical thinking, judgment, and insight. And if we base everything off AI, there's another problem where the enemy can understand the logic in which that's based and they can target that. And it's all about those established rule sets. You know, Think about what happened to supply chains during COVID that were run by technologies like that. We all saw the toilet paper fiasco when underlying assumptions change, the corresponding system can collapse. And so that's where humans really do well with, with dynamic situations. We also need to balance technical aspirations with realistic pragmatism. We can't pin everything on technologies that are largely aspirational. Of course, we need those goals. I think they're gonna happen over time, but they're not gonna happen tomorrow. They need space to get to success. And that includes letting them fail occasionally, learning from it, implementing it. And so we also need to you know, push to the future where the pathways are dependable. And this is really important knowing the budgets are gonna get tight. Bridging solutions are useful during periods like this. And we also want fallbacks in case a new system is issued. Redundancy is good, it gives us options and it drives complexity for an adversary. You know, and finally, we need to ensure that the C2 system can scale across the threat spectrum from major wars to lower level operations. It needs to be rapidly deployable and you know, shape to meet dynamic requirements. And mission affordability here is really key. People don't drive F1 race cars to Safeway. We need scalable tools so we don't overtax high-end capabilities or rob commanders what they need in lesser contingencies. Next slide, please. I also wanna hit on some lessons learned here that we highlighted in the report. There are two examples that are important. And first is the theater battle management core system, TBMCS. You know, it was designed to automate planning control of the air components. It was really difficult to understand. New users struggled with it. Didn't really match with real world demands as they evolved and it was far from flexible when new requirements emerged. You know, it was kind of engineering driven, not operating driven. 
And it was so bad at times that folks reverted back to you know, whiteboards and, and the markers, uh, other awkward forms of improvisation. And you can see the quotes below. Um, it, it definitely had real challenges. And if you look at oversight with GAO and congressional concern and ABMS and JETC2, there's, there's similar concerns. I'm not saying that's where those programs are going to go in saying we need to be mindful they don't go there. Next slide. The other history is where I just talked about a little bit earlier. You know, it is just the imbalance we saw when these new technologies came on board with connectivity, mass sensor presence, all of that. The whole system was out of whack. You know, the individual elements are very impressive, but we really didn't understand how to integrate them and, and handle it. I mean, considering the early 2000s that folks saw a 5,000% increase in sensor data with, with the advent of sensor shooters with MQ-9 and, and targeting pods and all that. The system was overwhelmed and mass quantities of data that could have been really useful were falling to the cutting room floor because we couldn't process it in a timely fashion. And we also saw confusion in command and control relationships with commanders reaching into cockpits, micromanaging tactical situations. It was a mess. We never survived like that in a high-end situation. We also saw unrealistic expectations regarding you know, goals for immaculate, perfect operations at the cost of good enough and, and managing some risk. And sensors and shooters were not categorized properly in, in the planning process. You know, it was kind of one or the other when in fact things like, you know, an MQ-9 or an MQ-1 or, or an F-16 with the sensor pod are both and you should be able to manage them as both. You know, if you, if you look at the RAND quote, that's from 1999, people saw that coming uh, and, and we need to get our head around it because it's, it's going to get harder. Next slide, please. And so that's where ABMS and JADC2 come in play. Again, informal definitions, but ABMS in my mind is a technical means by which information is gathered, processed, fused, and shared. And the collaborations are arranged and that's the right effects off the right platforms at the given time and place. You know, JADC2 is the overarching vision of all of this works, you know, from top tier commander intent throughout the operational and tactical chain. But we need to be really careful. And again, like I'm saying that the focus is not entirely technical. And to be honest, We've heard a lot about the technical side from Department of Air Force leaders. And I get it, the connectivity has got to get solved and improved. We don't have anything without it, but there are other elements. We cannot repeat, you know, TBMCS version two. And so they're just key questions that we need to ask. And you know, who's who's in charge here of this? Where does the data reside? How do you know handle the mass data flows? All that. I've, I've been hitting this a lot here. Next slide, please. So if we look at the future and what we actually think that you know, a model might look like, I'd say behind enemy lines, we need a number of sensors and effectors. So that places a premium on fifth generation and, and future generation aircraft that are both sensors and shooters can be dynamically engaged throughout. We need man-to-man -man teaming partners. You know, things like Skyborg and all that are huge in this. It's very important. And we also need the space-based systems that are gathering relevant data and are very, very important there. It's a complementary mix with space systems providing significant data flows, but the aircraft ensuring sensors in the right time and place when orbital tracks and timing don't align with mission demand. And there's no such thing as omnipresent satellite coverage all the time uh, with the kind of data we want. And you know, think about the situation we face, we face with Operation Enduring Freedom. Nobody thought we were gonna engage in Afghanistan. We had to operate off of Soviet maps. We had no assets looking at it. And so again, the, the dynamic um, you know, flow of assets is very important here. A layered approach is important here. We don't want single points of failure. 
Um, you know, second major thing here is AI, automation, machine learning. It is crucial for the handling the mass flows of, of data and, and making actionable information out of it. Third, I think human C2 experts are gonna be very, very important, aligning operational and tactical actions with commander intent. And they're gonna to need to do this at various tiers of the battle space. We need to recognize that the scale and high tempo of, of you know, the battle space is gonna have, when things like fifth gen assets and all are behind enemy lines, we're gonna be shooting at them. They're not exactly always gonna have time to think big thoughts about smart strategic employment in the battle space. It'll be useful to have a quarterback to help them out. Uh, that's looking in and, and able to you know, be a, a helping hand like we saw in, in Vietnam. And so I think this actually means pressing C2 experts in proximate relation to the battle space. Clearly you have to keep them alive. It's not, you know, no interest to get them shot down, but I do think there are options uh, to look at that. And it's also, we need to be realistic about comlinks. The further you stretch them out, the more fragile they become. You know, regional connectivity is value. And it adds complexity to an enemy's calculus if they aren't, you know, there are single points of C2 failure. I also think it's important to recognize that C2ISR is an acronym that grew to be one thing because that's what technology at the time demanded. You had to have a JSTARS or an AWACS with the sensor and the people co-located. That, that was tech at the time. Now you can disaggregate it. Now, maybe it makes sense to still have them on the same thing, but maybe you can turn off your sensor and pull off board data so you're not... Um, signaling so much where you're at with, with the emissions. But it, this flex, again, it's all important to keep options. I think, you know, there is value to a sensor being on the aircraft at times for, for lower end operations too. Um, it, it just, there's, there are options it gives you. Um, but again, this is not just one, one you know, model that we're looking at. And scaling it is going to be really important from major operations down, down the line. Next slide, please. Uh, if we could do the uh, next slide. So if we look at where we're at uh, in terms of the, the options, you know, you can really look at where I'm focusing and where, where do people reside and all of that in, in the battle space. Look, you could extend AWACS and JSTARs. It's bought and paid for, um, but let's be honest, these airframes are not young. The systems on board um, are, are not exactly new either. So there are challenges there. Um, they can be extended, but they're challenges. Next option is an E7 Wedgetail uh, option. It's, it's a viable choice. The big bills have been absorbed by allies. It's a mature capability. There's allied interoperability. Um, there are attractive cost points on it. Uh, it's pretty flexible across the spectrum. So that is, is a viable choice. I do like how the Air Force has been talking about putting C2 experts on KC-46s. I think it's definitely value added. But I think it's also important to highlight there's a choice there. What is the primary mission of the aircraft? Is it a tanker first or is it a C2 node first? Because the proximate position is very important. Where a tanker track might need to be, might not be where you want your C2 expert to be given what, what's in the mix. So I think it's more additive in nature on uh, not a single point solution. There's another one too that's kind of interesting right now. If you look at where technology is going and I think there is significant potential for the Air Force to look at some of the supersonic business jet options. If you look at the speed, which is really super cruise that they're talking about and the altitude in play, there are huge survivability benefits to that. Certainly it gives you a lot of employability options given the speed, it, it condenses large regions, gives you access to basing options. It can be, they can be built to be modular, open mission systems or sensor packages on board. And so I think it's an attractive option that, that again, it pushes technology, but it's not completely blowing up the model. 
But bottom line, I think we need to look at what options are in this layer. It's all about putting C2 experts in the battle space in a tiered fashion to ensure connectivity and complementary sensor options that include backup things, you know, recognizing that people behind enemy lines are gonna face task saturation and potential connectivity isolation that can, can lead to challenges. So, you know, again, options from space, hugely important. Other future aspirational things, very important. But I think it's important we have some midterm options too that, that allow some dependability. Next slide. So bottom line, C2 is, is everything. It matters a lot. And I think right now we are the UK in the Battle of Britain. So we have got to be very careful because we have too few of everything right now and the challenges are huge. You know, this isn't a zone where we really want to wave the wand and, uh, and hope that that kind of future hope uh, paves the way for everything. We do need some, some proven um, dependable options in, in the mix that, that emphasize resiliency. And I think it's important that C2 experts really be in relevant locations to ensure mission effectiveness, resiliency, and, and flexibility. So the paper is going to be on the website. I hope folks take a look at it. Uh, there's a lot more in it. Uh, past what I said here today, but thanks everybody for listening. Stuts back to you. Hey, thanks, Doug. That was a great presentation. Really appreciate uh, quite a foundation in this discussion about uh, C2. Thanks for the insights. Uh, I'd like to dig into some of this in greater detail, but to help us, I want to turn to our two operational experts in battle management. Uh, they know what they're talking about. And uh, I'll start with you, uh, Colonel Rouleau. Uh, Bigfoot, Doug gave us a great, you know, extensive rundown on future vectors for the Air Force's C2 Enterprise. However, you're an expert in the existing system of air battle management. What does that look like today? Could you explain its architecture? Yeah, you bet. Um, you know, today's C2 architecture looks very similar to what it looked like when I was an undergraduate uh, air battle manager student two decades ago. Uh, normally the joint force commander or JFC, right, designates a joint force air component commander uh, known as a JFAC, and that's the commander of all the joint air operations. The commander in her role as a JFAC generally utilizes a very similar command and control doctrinal structure, right? She would have a theater air control system or tax, and that, that tax is divided into ground elements, CRC, ASOS, um, and some airborne elements, Joint Stars, AWACS, and all these would, would report to an air operations center or an AOC. Just for basics, right? The CRC is a mobile, scalable, ground-based radar system, AWACS, airborne warning and control system, and the Joint Stars or J Stars is an airborne control system capable of tracking both moving and ground stationary targets. That, that, this is uh, interesting because you say two de decades ago, uh, it sounds a lot like what I, four decades ago when I was flying a young guy flying the F-4 and then the F-16. So uh, when was this architecture created? Sure, I, I don't find uh, any fault in that thinking. I think some panel members, uh, I'm sorry, some audience members will definitely agree. I would only add that some of the lessons that we learned from the Vietnam conflict led to an evolution of that structure, specifically with the AOC uh, and precision weapons. I think certainly since like a 1991 Operation Desert Storm, the US um, Air Force has served as a mul force multiplier uh, through the pirating use of the fixed AOC, which I hope we get to talk about a little bit later. Um, until now, this capability has proven uh, remarkably successful. Uh, and during that same time, I'd argue that U.S. precision strike regime has matured uh, through the evolution of smart weapons and stealth delivery. Um, but today, like Doug uh, expertly mentioned, and see two operators past and present know 
the U.S. forces are on the cusp of a new era with modern threats and a much more complex operating environment. Thanks for the question, though. Yeah, you bet. That was great to hear from you. Uh, so let me turn to Major uh, Big Bobby Wallace. Uh, would you mind racking and stacking the strengths and the limitations of the current battle management system? And given your experience on both AWACS and JSTARS, uh, some personal or team lessons learned that could inform the future vision of C2. Yeah, no problem. Thanks. Um, so, you know, really some of the positive attributes of this, and especially with the, the E3 and the E8 or the AWACS and the JSTARS is rapidly deployable and aside from ground support are relatively self-contained. And so this self-containment of a decision, a sensing and a communication element, along with the integration readiness that the uh, hardware and the crew bring, they allow these systems to support operations across a spectrum of conflict. And, and personally, I've been involved in moving um, these platforms halfway around the world in moments notices and being ready to stand up an operation within 24 hours of, 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 of getting on site. And that's pretty incredible considering what these platforms bring. Now, some of the negative aspects of this um, are the aging systems. They're based on an airframe that is extremely support intensive right now. Uh, 707 manufacturing lines, you know, so the 707-320 Bravo is what the E3 and the JSTARS are both based on. Uh, those production lines have been closed since the early 1990s when the last E3 rolled off the line. And parts are getting harder to come by. And along with that, because of the airframe and the way the structure is, system programming makes getting rapid difficulties, uh, uh, making, uh, makes getting rapid upgrades difficult as well and rarely timely. And so, you know, an example of this is the block 4045 upgrade for the E3 has been in conversation since the early 2000s and is to this day not complete uh, for, the, for the fleet. And so uh, that, that can really add a strain when you start talking about bringing new sensors or new shooters online at this day and age and what we're gonna need in future conflict. And so I'd say due to the age and maintenance uh, and maintaining crew, C2 Acumen is, is getting difficult with this. So yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of what I'd rack and say. And I, I, you know, we didn't talk a lot about the CRC, but it suffers from a very similar plight that the air, airborne airframes do as well. Yeah. And that yeah. getting upgrades are, are difficult. Yeah, uh, that's good. Uh, well, let, let me ask you both to comment. Uh, Doug talked about uh, and advocated the human component in the operational spectrum of C2. Uh, but uh, Big Bobby, let's start with the basic description of where the airmen fit in and especially explain the function of an air battle manager. Sure, so put simply, an air battle manager is a resource and risk manager that operate under the delegated authority of the Combined Forces Air Component Commander from a platform that is forward in the battle space. So our origin story, as Doug alluded to, is grounded largely in fighter control that came about in Vietnam from, EC1, uh, from the EC-121 and F-4s intercepting MiGs. Uh, so as technology and battlefields have evolved, so have our roles. Um, so air battle managers have been uh, located close to the battle space edge because it allows for us to employ our sensors and comm suites more dynamically as the conditions of the fighting are required to better support our assets. And in the future, this flexibility will be able to gap fill the communication and, and data passage requirements that we have. So today, our role has evolved more into managing sensors, weapons, and fuel to accomplish a given mission objective in a timely manager. And to give you a short uh, story and example of this, when I started controlling down at Tyndall as an undergraduate, um, we had a controller and a four ship of F-15s. By the time I had gone to weapons school, it was a four ship of F-15s that was being managed by a fifth generation fighter, but the battle manager was still there, except for our focus was less on providing tactical range and targeting information and more on how are we gonna intercept the next wave of the adversary? How are we gonna manage the fuel and the weapons to get there? 
So additive uh, and not replacing. Well, Bigfoot, you want to pitch in on this one? Sure. I, I, listen, and just to be fair, I want to start by saying that I think, you know, one day we may not need humans in the C2 architecture. Um, but for me, that day is not today, and it's not likely in the next 10 years. Um, I could give 100 combat examples where AI um, would have labeled a friendly force hostile or a hostile force friendly, all resulting in the need for human judgment. And over the years, for good and bad, several have stuck with me. Um, I'd like to just share a, a quick story, if that's okay. Um, you know, on one particular mission, we were flying over Afghanistan and the computer generated a, a friendly track, which just meant that the track meant certain predetermined automated criteria, but nonetheless, it was friendly. And that symbology went, you know, again, from the aircraft all the way to the AOC. So everyone is tracking uh, that it's a friendly. But, you know, as we were following the track, the track was headed directly for a major road intersection in which we, we knew was a large, uh, had a large U.S. Army convoy getting ready to pass through it in, a, you know, in, in some time. Our crew had seen this one too many times, right? So here's some human judgment. And we watched as the track originated from a known IED house. The entire crew was immediately suspicious that the track we were following was, was not friendly at all, right? We quickly intervened, made contact with the JTAC. And within a couple of minutes, uh, the JTAC on the ground was able to visually ID and see the person digging a hole and about to bury an IED in anticipation of that army convoy, you know, right? So if we had relied exclusively on AI that day, uh, the results would have been life-changing. Uh, for an, uh, some soldiers. Uh, great, great story, uh, Colonel Rulo. Uh, Major Wallace, uh, what do you think this discussion of humans means for ABMS and JADC2? Where do you think C2 human expertise will deliver the best value? So I think that the human expertise delivers the best value when it's additive to the AI in the enhanced data processing. So like, as Doug alluded to, think about the explosion of the RPAs and the subsequent mountains of data, and that posed a problem for processing. And so, you know, for example, I've been to several red flags and I've specialized particularly in dynamic targeting, which is one of the more difficult mission sets to accomplish. And, you know, in that mission, we have to go out and find and track and execute against mobile missile systems. And inevitably, we don't ever hit them all. And when we go to the debrief, we find somebody in the room that had the critical piece of information that just didn't make it to the right shooter in time. And, and I've seen that time and time again. It's a debrief focus point that will, has existed at Red Flag since the beginning. And so I think really what this is, is you know, when you start talking about C2 and ISR, is the difference between uh, strategic intelligence and, and data and tactical data and intelligence that, that runs on minutes and not hours. So to pogo off of Bigfoot's track example, the crew didn't have time. They didn't have an indefinite amount of time to go back and look at the heat tracks and, and really do this in-depth analysis through the mountains of data. Instead, they had to make a snap judgment based on the human intellect and judgment and the C2 crew to, to save lives that day. And so, you know, I think AI stands to greatly enhance command and control. Uh, I think it's going to help make sense of the volumes of data. Um, I think it's going to help sort and get the most timely and relevant pieces to the operators that need it when they need it. Yeah, well, you're bringing up uh, the whole nature of, of bringing this data together, and we've seen a huge surge in battle space data. Uh, it's accelerating. Uh, we have so many sensors out there that the flow risks at times overwhelming the C2 enterprise. So, Colonel Rouleau, could you please talk about this a bit in the current system? How does it impact how you execute your mission? Right. Um I like to use like the, the a Tetris analogy, right? 
with all of the battlefield sensors available, so much information will arrive so quickly as to thwart and obstruct you know, most efforts to sort, prioritize, and place information necessary for an advantage. Today, humans are needed to act as a filter, to kind of slow down and make sense of the Tetris puzzle. But make no mistake, this is a learned skill. You know, one example of a JSARS crew, right? They generate information needed for a customized decisions within a battle, allowing other strike elements to sip a soda straw of relevant information to act decisively, rather than like an element of a strike package having to sift through the equivalent of a fire hose of data in order to find the proverbial needle in haystack, right? Without a nail batter manager, the Tetris block, you know, can overwhelm an entire strike package. Yeah. That's interesting analogy. Uh, talk a little further on this. The, you know, Doug referred to it, Big Bobby mentioned it, and that's where you might think uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning fits into this equation, helping process this raw data so you can benefit from it, but are not overwhelmed uh, by this mass that's coming at you. How do you see the use of those two things? Um. So ideally, the main hope is to enable machine-to-machine -machine data transfer to occur everywhere simultaneously, right? So that any sensor can see anything and that data is available to any shooter anywhere. Um, but this is where I think Doug has it exactly right. Understanding exactly what information is most essential for decision-making is so crucial. Uh, and I'd only humbly add, we need to think equally hard about what information is non-essential and what to do and how to do with that information. Thank you. Yeah. Bill, Big Bobby, over the last year, uh, we've learned a lot from you about C2, and thanks for that from all of us at Mitchell Institute. And you've developed a model to help us better understand the core facets of the C2 enterprise. Could you, could you go through that with us, please? Yeah, absolutely. I'll ask for that slide to get called up. It makes it a little bit easier to talk to you. So this, this model that um, you know, could, could, I guess, be referred to in a way as like a C2 trinity uh, breaks down the components of a C2 system. And so if you look at the main containers, the, the, the decision, the information, and the actor, those are the primary, what I'm calling elements of a C2 system. And they're connected uh, through networks, links, and information pipes. You know, sometimes they're called lines of communication. And I would, I'd make an argument that this is where the ABMS fits. You know, this ABMS is those links that, that bring those things together. And so this model has to exist and operate effectively within different environments. And those environments are, uh, and you can see those on, on the side of the slide, the geographic environment. So, you know, the physical world in which the machines and, and weapons operate in. And then there's the data environment. So, you know, the advent of these, these sensors that have brought mountains of data in have in a sense created their own warfighting environment that has to have these considerations. And this model can be applied into that as well. And then, I'm, and then I have with the, the domain environment that is the combination, the unique combination of the geographic and the data. And so like, for example, the naval environment has its own unique set of data that is relevant to it, as well as a unique physical environment that isn't necessarily the same as a land environment. And so with this, they have to operate, this model has to operate with these axioms. And those axioms have to be considered for every element and the lines of communication that connect them. And so the first is trust. So the information has to be trustworthy for an effective decision to be made or for an actor to target off of it. This also has to be scaled. And so the scaling of this is important. Now this model can be scaled up and down as a whole or components of this can be scaled up and down. And so what I would say right now, like with the explosion of sensors, what we've seen is an overscaling of the information relevant to the number of actors that we have and the decision node that we have to make sense and use it all. 
And so that's a, that's a huge element of this or a huge axiom that this model has to take into consideration. Um, survivability is a major piece of this. Each of these nodes has to be independently and collectively survivable. So the decision has to, the decision node and the element has to be there and exist. The actors have to be able to work in their different environments and the information elements, the sensors have to as well. And then the last piece that I put in here is time. So everything has to be timely. You know, we talk about this a lot in UAVMT. We talk about it a lot in command and control and exercises. You have to make sure that the right information gets the right person into the right actor in a time that is relevant or at the speed of battle. And so when I think about ABMS and JATSE2, we usually talk about, you know, it's, it's very it's cerebral and very disparate on how we talk about the systems. And I designed this model to help make it easier to contextualize where investments go in the or investments in the DOD complex are going and how each component can integrate into the larger system. So in short, it helps force a holistic solution. And one thing that I've learned here at Mitchell is, is making subjects conveyable to policymakers is important. And this model helps do that with a subject matter as, as, as hard to grasp as command and control. And it helps show where programs like ABMS fit in the larger scheme. That's great, uh, Big Bob, you get an A. And uh, I just wanna compliment you on this, that it is the more fundamental uh, and essential a model, the more applicable it is. Uh, good on you. Uh, let me let me switch gears a little bit. And uh, Bigfoot, uh, we know you spent a lot of time thinking about China. Uh, could you please talk to us about how they view C2 superiority, and what does this mean for our current systems as well as you know the ABMS JAD C2 vision? Um, absolutely. Uh, you know, the, the PLA is at the tail end of a major transformation from mechanized warfare to what they call informationalized warfare. Uh, and that brings with it lots of changes. The PLA believes that achieving informationalized dominance while denying the same to their adversaries is an absolute requirement for them for future conflict. The PLA has been experimenting with tactics and technologies that seek to disrupt the US command and control system. The PLA also seeks to create doubt in the C2 system. And this is so important as we talk about AI. Uh, to put it plainly, right? I worry that if we get involved in a conflict with unproven technology, the PLA will exploit these potential weaknesses. That's, that's very provoking. Uh, so let me take it a step further. We, we've talked about the need for artificial intelligence to address a lot of challenges in the modern battle space. But could AI also present a vulnerability if the Chinese understand the underlying assumptions guiding its decision-making process? So, yeah, these are some tough questions. I love it. Um, listen, I want to be clear. I am a believer. Uh, AI is going to be very important in the future. Uh, it's getting better every day. But we ought to allow room and time for it to develop properly. You know, here, I think it's wise to maybe think about what Will Roper said about an AI that most of us know well, R2-D2, right? Uh, he reminds us that R2-D2 is great in the movies, but in the real world, he often gets confused when an adversary is trying to mess with his data that he's given to produce a decision. You know, and maybe one of the biggest mistakes we can make is to ask our operators to go into harm's way with a system that's not ready for combat or is extremely vulnerable to countermeasures because we are rushing. And listen, I'll end the question this way. To be sure, we need aspirational goals, but we must avoid aspirational solutions. Yeah, 
No, well said, thank you. Thank you, Colonel. Uh, Major Wallace, over to you. Uh, we're thinking a lot about high-end warfare here, but in uh, the focus on pure competition, but you know, we know we're going to be remain engaged in low to mid-tier operations as things pop up around the world. Uh, how do we build a C2 enterprise that's flexible uh, across that full range of demand? Yeah, so to use the, the model that I, I brought out, you need flexibility and redundancy to build the trust and survivability in the C2 system. And, and NAN C2 options, they give you this redundant communication and the flexibility to respond within hours, and especially when paired with a sustainable platform. So an example of, of your low to mid-tier operations that we're, we're inevitably going to find ourselves in in the future will be you know, Operation Odyssey Dawn and how C2 provided a scaled response within hours of activation. And that was, you know, that was all components of the tax. It was the AOC, it was the JSTARS, and it was the AWACS responding in a time that was relevant to the battle space. And so, you know, when we talk about the high end part of this, survivability is often brought up as a reason why Mansi 2 is outdated and dangerous and is considered legacy thinking. And I would say that the only thing legacy about that thinking is if you do what we often do in our publications relevant to C2, and that's tie the platform to the sensor that's on the roof. And so, or on underneath it in the JSTARS case. And so I, you know, I would say that we, we need to shift is our paradigm of the way we think about employing our C2 systems and how they integrate with uh, disaggregated sensors across the battle space. So as the CRC has proven uh, over, over its range of operations in the Middle East, it could respond quickly. It had a native capability of communications that could be disaggregated if required. Um, but it also had the ability to integrate sensor feeds to, to act as a very effective decision node uh, when the CFAC needed it. And so what I would say is today, technology allows for a similar thing to happen on a platform or an airframe that's even faster to respond, even more flexible, uh, and isn't sitting in a stationary site that we have all talked about is, is, is basically a target. And so I think that yeah, when we talk right. about the range of operations, that's where the MAN C2 platforms give us those options. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're almost at the end of our segment here, but I wanna squeeze in one last thing, uh, Big Bobby. Uh, you have a very interesting perspective on the traditional mashing up of C2 and ISR. Uh, why do those two things need to be separated? And what does that mean in this discussion of C2? Yeah, so, you know, I think that the that umbrella term really takes two separate mission objectives and, and oversimplifies them. And so ISR and the system that we know that, that's in place is structured to ingest this data and generate products that are in turn used to inform decisions for command and controllers at different scales. And so like when we think about the ISR goes out to answer CCIRs or commander's critical intelligence requirements. Um, and they, they have analysts that pour over it to provide a very comprehensive product. And that often takes hours to do. You know, C2 professionals like battle management do a similar thing, but we do it in minutes and we do it scaled to the actions that we're taking and the mission package that we're supporting. And so while these things work in concert, they are independent functions. And often ISR is operating on a different time scale than our current, our, our current C2 nodes. And having been on JSTARS before, like I know that we often get tasked to answer those things. And, and the C2 function is sometimes left out of that. You know, and I would say the inverse is probably true for the AWACS being not looked at for what it can provide data-wise. And so, sure. you know, when we talk about advancing, we need to talk about how these two mission objectives relate and then to use the model, how uh, how the ISR is the sensing element scaled to the decision and then the actors with the timeliness of it being at the, at the core of its operations. 
Yeah, that's great. Well, gents, we've come to the end of this segment. I'd ask all of our audience to download this policy paper. It's titled Command and Control Imperatives for the 21st Century. And I want to thank our author, Doug Berkey, Mitchell's Executive Director. Thank you, Doug. And our great appreciation to the Air Force for adding the insights today uh, by our Air Force fellows and battle management experts. Thanks to Colonel Bigfoot Rouleau and Major Big Bobby Wallace. Gents, we want to first thank you for your service. And second, we wish you the best as you move on to your next assignments. We're going to now open up the session to questions from our audience who have been listening and feel free to direct your questions if you desire, or you can just throw them out there. As a reminder, you can use the Q&A function. You could use the raise hand function is, is probably the best, or you can type your question in the Q&A box. Uh, when I call on you, state your name and affiliation before asking your question. And with that, I'm gonna start with Steve Trimble. Steve, unmute and introduce yourself. Yes, hi, Steve Trimble, Aviation Week. Uh, good to talk to you guys. Thanks for the report and the discussion, of, you know, especially the part about ambiguity and uh, AI application is, is very, um, makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I just had a, a one quick follow-up on, on the report and then something that's come up recently. Uh, the quick follow-up is on the supersonic application for a C2 ISR aircraft. I'm just trying to figure out, you know, can you can you actually still get supersonic speed once you put the ISR uh, system on it uh, or any sort of command and control with it? But uh, I'm thinking, you know, a JSTARS antenna or an AMTI antenna in particular, uh, how that affects your supersonic speed. And then secondly, um, you know, uh, the Space Force chief said a couple of weeks ago he's going to do a GMTI satellite something um, uh, to replace JSTARS uh, by 2025 uh, or, or something like that. Uh, I was wondering if you could just sort of address how that would meet the requirement, you know, how you build a GRCA from space, uh, just just based on your knowledge of it. And uh, is, is that is that the solution? Is that part or, you know, or a big part of the solution? Let me hop in here because I did research on the paper. So for the supersonic one, we met with a lot of the vendors that are that are playing in this realm. And given newer technologies and all that, um, they think there are options for, for netting that objective. And the modular payloads they're playing with are, are actually pretty interesting um, in, in plug and play too for, for modularity, changing what you're carrying for a given mission. I think you know for the space application, we're pretty encouraged to see that and we're very positive on it. But I think there are important questions to ask on it. You know, we spent the last year where everybody was struggling to get on Zoom links. So there are some questions about the connectivity when uh, when it's being challenged uh, by adversaries. There are also questions about when you need to really look at a at a target for an extended period of time. You know, what is the steering capability of something like that? Um, and also, are we going to a single point of failure? You know, I, I think we should definitely take that road. I think my thesis was more along the lines of and other things, so we don't have single points of failure. And it's scalable. I mean, you know, you look at something like Syria or Libya, you don't need the Ferrari option for that. And again, I, I don't know what, what the space-based you know, system would look like, but I think there are options when, hey, we're hopping on the jet, we're going, and you have an option in 72 hours. That is pretty useful. Um, and so I think it's just, I'm pointing more towards an ecosystem where it's a multitude of things to add complexity and, and to give us options and really buy down the risk. I mean, we're living in an era right now where we're pushing a lot of weapon systems really, really hard because we curtailed things too early 
in past generations to save cash or, or you name it. I mean, look at the effect of canceling the F-22 prematurely. It's exploded the pressure on the, the current fighter situation. And so I just want to make sure we don't preclude options that are going to be really important to, to allow the time to, you know, these future things to, to come into the fold. But I'm for it. I just, I just want more options. Yeah, and Doug, I just uh, I, I return to what you said. You, you you saw in this paper you conclude the need to have not just one domain gathered of all things uh, capabilities in the battle space that there needs to be some layers and resilience, right? Not completely. Yeah, exactly. Uh, let's go to Garrett. Unmute and introduce yourself. Hi. Yes, this is Garrett with Flight Global. Um, my question is around um, some of the risks of uh, networking um, via Jazzy 2 or any other sort of battlefield network. I wonder about the, the risks where, um, you know, you start to, someone in the rear, a, a commander who's not on the front line may presume to have a pretty holistic view of the battlefield and may override or, um, you know, sort of, um, I don't know be an armchair general from 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 far away um you know is that a problem is that something how do you deal with that these other guys have experienced but i'll just offer i think the the protocols are going to be vital because just because you can doesn't mean you should and there's going to be at times when the commanders just need to trust that those are on the front lines really have the proper essay and, and I think that we saw this time and time again for the past 20 years. Um, you know, General Stutchin too is his time um, in command elements and can speak to it. But I think it's it's back to, you know, Rand was setting these problems in, in the late 90s that they're gonna happen. We never got our heads around it. We were always behind the curve. If we were ever against China, they're never gonna allow us that elasticity. So we've got to get it right, think through these things now and really game them out in this period, well, we've got some maneuver space, but under fire, no way, it's, it's not gonna work to figure it out. Yeah, and Garrett, I'll add, uh, I really think that there needs to be extensive exercising by two and three-star generals who are going to be in the future system. They need to understand that this is not the last 20 years in which they've been conditioned. So exercise programs, it seems uh, simple, but that, that's a very important element going forward. Hey, I've got uh, a, a write-in question here. Uh, might be good for uh, Bigfoot and Big Bobby, but given the expansion of access to data information, dispersal of assets across the battle space, potential disconnection of forces from headquarters, how do you see the needed transition in culture and psychology and uh, the implications for, uh, for conditions-based authorities? And I think we might be touching on mission command a bit here. Sure. Listen, I'm happy to take a to take a go at this one. I'm, I'll make a, uh, a couple of assumptions for the question, and Colonel Miller, if I uh, if I assume wrong, just just pipe in there. I, I, I assume that you're asking about like um, you know away from the battlefield, meaning uh, maybe even in, in Conus, for example, like uh, what what Mountain Home is doing right now. I think that's made. I think that's general knowledge out of uh, what they're doing out of Shaw. Um, and, and I think the answer is we just don't know, right? But there's a lot of there's a lot of data that we have to try to figure this out when it goes when it comes to you know the psychology and the control, right? Of uh, you know of actually you know running combat missions from stateside, um, 
you know, going home with families, uh, you know, et cetera. We can look to the uh, to the DGSs. We can look to the uh, RPA squadrons that have been doing this now for uh, you know for a couple of years. I'll pause there. I'll let Big Bobby answer, and then again, if I if I misunderstood, uh, you know, please pipe in, uh, you know, uh, in the chat, and then I can also address uh, you know mission type orders as well. But Big Bobby, please. Yeah, so you know, I think the angle I'll take on this is the um, the risk management piece of it. You know, and I would I would argue that C two structures are in a lot of ways constructed to manage risk and delegate authorities. And there's a couple of different conditions. You know, I think the last the last couple of decades in the Middle East has seen the, the traditional authorities that the C two architecture that was developed post the Cold War kind of get usurped up to the top, and we haven't seen a whole lot of practice for the you know, that what we would consider maybe to be the, the mid-tier operators in the tax to manage that risk. And I do think that there's going to be a big training gap there. And I think that we are going to have to accept some imperfect operations as we make that jump when, you know, when I talk about the psychology and disconnection, because inevitably we will be disconnected, you know, things will get compromised. That is the fog of war. And we're going to need to make sure that the operators at all levels are prepared uh, to, to work off the delegated authorities that they've been given um, from the top down. I'll jump back in with, with mission command, right? Just to make sure we all have the same kind of mental model going forward, right? It has four key characteristics that I think will, you know, that can help solve some of these questions. And, and when you say, um, conditions type orders, I think we're talking very similar, right? Mission command is about conducting operations through decentralized execution based on mission type orders. It exploits the human element, emphasizing trust and judgment. It demands that subordinate units act aggressively and independently. I think that goes directly to what General Stutz was talking about, where we need to have our generals, you know, uh, allow that to happen. Uh, and fourth, it requires commanders to focus their orders on the purpose rather than the details of the operation. Uh, and I'll only add, right, that our competitors, including the PLA, teach the same concept too. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, thanks to both. Uh, we got a question here from Richard Jackson. Should future airframes all include a level of ISR sensor and C2 node to support the ABM network? Doug, you want to take that? Anyways, I think they already kind of do. If you look at where fifth gen yeah. is going, if you look at where RPA sensor shooters are going with MQ9, uh, and I think if you look at where Skyborg's going, um, in many ways they're all built around this. And so it's really about the ecosystem of how we're going to manage it. And it, it speaks to a lot of the, the crush of data in, in the processes that I was speaking about earlier, is that we're already kind of seeing those things come to the fold, but we're lacking a way to manage it prudently. And we need to make sure that, that the flows that are, are coming off of it are making us smarter, not miring us down um, in, in just so much that it's, it's unmanageable. It's kind of like, you know, theoretically, there's, there's a lot of information if you watch all your TV stations at the one time, but uh, it's just a mess of noise. Um, and so uh, you need to be able to focus and know what you need to look at and, and kind of get rid of the rest. We have another question here that's interesting. Uh, uh, in the context of emerging focus on multi-domain operations, do you envision organizational structures, organizational structures evolving or emerging to execute authorities cross domain in this MDO environment? How so? Is there a big change ahead for MDO? I think you're gonna to have to have linkages to allow some of that to occur, but you cannot surrender the domain knowledge and expertise. There is 
there is a, a confused definition of joint that it means kind of merging it all together and everybody gets an equal share and all of that. And yet we forget that it takes decades to produce this level of expertise. So if we think it would be insane to put a fighter pilot in charge of a submarine, why do we put, why do we think that's okay in a command and control structure at the most senior levels? Uh, and so I think that we need to maintain that domain expertise, but allow the interlinks to, to occur productively and, and rapidly. Uh, how about you guys? Yeah, go ahead, Big Bobby. Yeah, I would I would add to this, you know, like air battle managers from our, our you know first day of class or told we're integrators of effects, you know, and if you look at multi-domain operations, um, that's what we do, you know, from the different effects that they bring to the to the table. And we're, we're taught that, you know, early. Um, Tyndall's doing it now. I know the weapons school spends a whole integration phase in, in teaching Air Force operators how to do that. And I think you just have to expand that a little bit um, into the multi-domain and then realize you don't know what you don't know and you're gonna need that expert there. And then you're gonna need a commander that knows how to leverage the effects when they're needed to be, when they are needed to be leveraged. So, I, you know, I, I would say that's gonna be a, a big change in the, in the multi-domain operations in the future. And it's gonna involve a little bit of trust and a little bit of risk, but it's just an expansion of what we already are teaching. Yeah, Bigfoot, anything on that? Nope, you're good. Hey, I just uh, want to press uh, one more minute here. And uh, and Doug and Big Bobby, uh, first of all, the, the baseline of this understanding air battle management is, is very important. But Big Bobby, you mentioned that in your career, you find that a vast majority of people don't understand the purpose or definition of air battle management. Is that true? I think that... They, I think that because we're so small, you know, it's so yes, I do think there's an element of truth. You know, we're a very small career field, 1,300 or so of us that are largely concentrated on three platforms. And the only integration experience a lot of the, the bigger service gets is when we show up to a red flag. And, and that's, you know, a lot of times the first time most of us have been to the big game. And, um, you know, I think that it's just like C2 is a kind of a very cerebral subject, what air battle managers do is, is that way as well. Yeah. So we spend yeah. a lot of time explaining it. Um, you know, I think talks like this really help bridge that understanding. Um, and I think nailing down a C2 framework helps see where we fit as well. Very, very good. Uh, everyone, we've come to the end of Mitchell Institute's rollout of our policy paper titled Command and Control Imperatives for the 21st Century the next areas of growth for ABMS and JADC2. To the author, Doug Berkey, and battle managers, Colonel Bigfoot Rouleau, and Major Big Bobby Wallace, thanks again for your important work and insights. And to all, have a great Aerospace Power Day. Thanks, guys.